Um, I'm Laura Goodman. I am one of the co-chairs of the BBA's Elder Law and Disability subsection. Um, I'm also um, an attorney practicing elder law and estate planning for Margolis Bloom and D'Agostino in Wellesley. Um, I'm joined today by Jennifer Magiacomo. She is a magistrate and assistant uh, judicial case manager with the Norfolk Probate Court. And prior to that, she worked for the Middlesex Probate Court. And prior to her appointment with the court, Ms. Um, Majacomo was an associate in the estate planning and estate administration department of Peabody and Brown, now Nixon Peabody, and served as a law clerk to the justices of the Massachusetts Probate and Family Court. She has authored various works for the MCLE on the Massachusetts Uniform Probate Code, and she has lectured on guardianship, estate administration, and real estate matters for the MCLE, the BBA, REBA, I'm going to add Mass NALA to that list because I know I've seen you at a Mass NALA function as well, um, and other local community organizations. So we're very pleased to have um, her here to share her perspective on this topic. Um, and so today we are going to discuss single transaction conservatorships. Um, this is something that uh, has been a very useful tool for me in my practice. Um, uh, unfortunately, they are often misunderstood and misused. Um, and so we're here to clear up some of the um, misconceptions and um, we're going to explain exactly what they are and what they are not um, and hopefully give you the tools to successfully move a petition for a single transaction through the probate court. Um, we are going to leave some time at the end of the presentation to take any questions. Um, you are welcome to submit questions using the Q&A function, um, but we probably won't get to them until until um, the end of, of the webinar. All right, so I am going to let's see if I remember. We just practiced this, so let's see if I remember how to do it. Okay, um, so all right, so I'm going to back up just a moment and just review what a what a traditional conservatorship is. I'm sure most of you know, but it's just to help help frame this topic. So um, a traditional conservatorship is when the court determines that a person is unable to manage their property or their business interests, either because they are a minor and they legally cannot manage um, property, or because they are incapacitated and there is no attorney in fact or other fiduciary who can handle their affairs for them. So with the typical conservatorship appointment, the court will appoint a conservator to manage the protected person's estate. Um, a permanent conservatorship will remain in place um, until a number of things happens, until the protected person reaches age 18, if, if the conservatorship was because they were a minor. Um, if the incapacitated person regains capacity, um, that, that does occur. Um, if the protected person passes away or if the conservator you know, is removed or, or resigns and someone else is appointed in their place. So while the conservatorship is in place, um, the conservator is responsible for filing annual accounts. Um, if there is a bond with corporate charities, um, that must be kept up to date and with, with annual premiums paid on that. Um, and the conservator remains responsible as a fiduciary um, and has a fiduciary duty to the protected person throughout the extent of the conservatorship. Um, of course, a conservatorship can be limited, and, and it should be limited, um, to just those financial matters that are necessary, um, but even a limited conservatorship will remain in place over time with these reporting and bond requirements. 
Um, but there are scenarios where a conservator is only needed for a very limited duration to handle a specific situation, and that is when a single transaction appointment can make sense. So rather than open a full conservatorship and have the probate court um, be involved in the protected person's affairs indefinitely, um, an estate planning attorney can consider this single transaction option. Um, so the statutory reference is up here, granting the court the ability to, um, to uh, so this is section 5-408 of the MUPC. This language gives the court the power without appointing a conservator to authorize any transaction necessary or desirable to achieve any arrangement for security, service, or care meeting the foreseeable needs of the protected person. It also provides that the court can authorize any contract, trust, or transaction if it's in the protected person's best interest. Um, so this language is quite broad. It, it grants the court a great deal of flexibility in terms of what they are able to authorize on behalf of the protected person without actually appointing a conservator, which is, which is the key piece for us. So um, when can this be useful or appropriate? Uh, so in a scenario where a, there is a property interest to be managed or protected, but there is no ongoing financial management needed, and I will get into a couple examples that illustrate that. Um, if a person has a durable power of attorney in place, um, meaning there is an agent who has authority to manage someone's finances, however, the power of attorney has certain limitations. For example, if the power of attorney does not expressly authorize the agent to transfer real estate or create trusts or make gifts or other actions that may be recommended for estate planning purposes. Um, and of course, even if there is a power of attorney in place, not all actions can be delegated to an attorney in fact. For example, the creation of a will cannot be done under a power of attorney. Um, so some of the benefits of using the single transaction option, um, one is that you can be very uh, surgical in, in tailoring a probate action to the specific transaction that, that's needed. So this avoids unnecessary and extended court involvement. Um, the special conservator's duties and their bond are discharged once the transaction is completed and a report is made to the court. Um, so this uh, removes the requirement of annual reporting and, and accounting. Um, so I have a couple examples here to walk through. The example number one is a John Doe, and obviously these names are made up in, in both of these examples. Uh, so in this scenario, John Doe has severe dementia. He resides in a nursing facility. He receives MassHealth long-term care benefits to pay for his care. Um, John's brother passes away without a spouse or children and without a will. And so as one of um, the brother's surviving siblings, John is entitled to a share of his estate, which is worth around $70,000. Um, if John receives these funds, he will lose his MassHealth benefits. Um, and not only that, but the inherited funds are going to be uh, consumed within a few months entirely by the cost of his care, um, with you know nothing left over to, to benefit um, John to, for John to benefit um, from his brother's estate. Uh, in this scenario, John does not have an attorney in fact, or maybe he does have an attorney in fact, but it's it's not um, 
it's not very comprehensive and it doesn't include the express authority to create or fund trusts. So the goal of the estate planning attorney here is to ensure that John Doe's inheritance does not cause him to lose access to his MassHealth nursing home benefits and allow him to benefit from the funds during his life. Um, one possible solution here is to petition the probate court to appoint a special conservator for a single trans transaction, and that transaction is to establish a D4C pooled trust on John's behalf, um, and then transfer the inherited funds into the trust. Um, with this mechanism, funds in the pooled trust can then be used for John's benefit. Um, they, you know, with with a pooled trust, the, that transfer is not penalized by MassHealth, and so it will not impact his MassHealth eligibility. Um, after the pool trust is established and funded, uh, the special conservator is required to file a report to the court, usually within 90 days. Um, and once that report is filed, uh, the court will, uh, assuming the report is satisfactory, um, the court will sign a decree to discharge the special conservator um, and the conservator's bond if, if there is a you know, corporate um, or a bond with sureties in place. Just um, one note on this, uh, with this example, um, currently the, the pool trust option for individuals over 65 is, is still available and, and can be a useful um, tool for this scenario. Um, there, we may lose that, <laughs> that um, tool in, in March of next year. The uh, exemption for individuals over 65 might be going away. So if you're watching this and it's recorded, then um, this, this may not be a, a perfect scenario, but um, this is under, under the current rules. Um, so, so this is just an example of a, oh, is that the right one? Hmm. Oh, so this is an example of the decree that we would want to see in this, in this case. Um, so this is a, it's not your typical conservatorship decree. It is the MPC 734. Um, so it is a, specifically a decree for these um, special conservatorship appointments and single transactions. Um, and so you want to be as specific as possible in um, requesting authority um, to, to conduct these actions. So here, uh, this decree is seeking the authority to establish a D4C pooled trust on the respondent's behalf and transfer the respondent's share of assets um, inherited from his deceased sibling's estate. Um, and again, down here, we are requesting the specific authority. If a, if a bond is required, if a, sorry, if a bond with sureties is required, um, that, that amount would be filled in there. Um, and down here is the reporting requirement. So within 90 days, the special conservator shall file a report with the court, um, and the report shall include the following information. So for this example, what the court would want to see is verification that the pooled trust was created. So that would be a copy of the signed um, instrument of trust assignment and um, some financial documentation verifying that the funds were actually deposited in the pooled trust. Um, and so a report with those um, supporting documents um, should be sufficient to discharge the, the special conservator in, in this, this situation. All right, so another example here is some long-term care planning for Jane Smith. So Jane Smith and her spouse are elderly. 
Um, they're likely going to need long-term care within a few years. Their estate planning attorney is recommending that they create new wills with testamentaries, trusts for the surviving spouse, and to change the tenancy of their real estate from tenants by the entirety to tenants in common. Um, so we're not, uh, this webinar is not um, intended to uh, provide long-term care plan, uh, planning um, advice, so I'm not going to get into the, you know, the reasoning behind, by, behind this, but this is a potential you know, long-term care plan for, um, for an elderly couple. Unfortunately, Jane has advanced Alzheimer's, so she is not able to create a new will or sign a deed. Um, she does have a durable power of attorney, but it does not include the power to transfer real estate. Um, that is an express power that is needed in a power of attorney um, for title purposes. Um, and of course, an attorney, in fact, cannot execute a will on the principal's behalf. So in this scenario, um, our, our potential solution is to petition to appoint a special conservator, um, and the transaction is to execute a new will for Jane, that includes a testamentary trust, and to sign a deed on Jane's behalf to change the tenancy of the property. Um, both the will and the deed will be signed by the special conservator pursuant to the authority that's gr granted in the decree. And once the documents are executed and the deed is either recorded or, or registered, um, the special conservator will file a report with the court with copies of these executed documents um, to discharge the the appointment. Um, so this is an example of uh, what we would be requesting in the petition. Um, so this is page two of a, um, of a conservatorship petition. It is the same petition. So the, the decree I showed you, it is a, it's a different decree, but the petition is the same that you would use for a standard conservatorship. Um, however, here on page two, we're not seeking the appointment of a conservator or a limited conservator we're seeking authorization for the following single transaction, um, which is to create a will on the respondent's behalf and to execute a deed to transfer this real property. This is not a real property. Maybe it's a real address. I, I just made it up. Um, from tenancy by the entirety to tenants in common. Um, you do want to make sure you're including, if, if you're doing something like transferring real estate, um, you know, transferring financial accounts, updating beneficiaries on, on accounts, you want to be sure that you are being specific and including, you know, for example, the address of the real property. Um, if you're updating beneficiaries on a retirement account, you want to identify the institution and at least a portion of the account numbers um, because not necessarily for the court's purposes, but for um, purposes of the, you know, the title reviewer who's going to be, um, you know, uh, potentially reviewing title at some point, and also for the financial institutions. They want to make sure that the um, decree and the probate documents are, are very clear and explicit with the authority that's being granted. Um, and here we are requesting the appointment of a special conservator, not, not a standard conservator, but a special conservator to accomplish the above-stated protective arrangement. Um, this is the last page of the petition, again, uh, just reiterating that we're seeking the appointment of a special conservator and exactly what authority we are we are seeking. Um, and here's an example of the decree for that Jane Smith scenario. Um, again, make sure that real estate um, address is in the decree if you're seeking to transfer real estate. Um, and 
you, you basically reiterate the, the authority in both areas on the decree. And this does, I cut off the bottom of the decree to fit, fit it on here, but again, you would want, um, it'll have that section about the reporting requirements. And in this scenario, what you would need to um, provide to the court in the report is a copy of the will that was executed, also a copy of the deed that was executed and either re recorded or, or registered. Um, so the, the court process is very similar to a standard conservatorship. Um, it is the same petition, just you know, filled out a little differently as, as I just showed. Um, you would also need, of course, a medical certificate um, or a clinical team report, depending on what the, the person's disability is. Um, this is assuming it's for a disabled adult and not for a minor, of course. Um, you would, of course, need a bond. Um, the uh, military affidavit using the, the new <laughs> military affidavit form, which um, if you haven't seen it yet, make sure that you're, you're reviewing that and, and using that in all of your filings going forward. Um, we, we try to, uh, certainly in these, if we're doing this for estate planning purposes, hopefully it's not going to be a contested matter. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of operating under the presumption that this is not a, a contested situation. Um, if that's the case, then we um, are going to want to get a sense from family members if we can. So the interested parties here are going to be the protected person's spouse if they have one, their children if they have them, um, potentially parents if, there, if there's no spouse and children, potentially siblings. Um, if they have an attorney, in fact, um, or a healthcare proxy, that those, those persons are going to be entitled to some notice as well. Um, and so, to the extent that you can, you can get assent forms uh, signed by the interested parties. Um, that that certainly will be helpful. Um, you know, typically for our clients, we're also filing motions to waive sureties and motions to waive a guardian ad litem. Um, it doesn't mean they're going to be allowed. <laughs> uh, but in some scenarios, particularly if it's an estate planning matter where, um, you know, all of the family is in agreement and it's a, you know, fairly um, straightforward scenario, it, there may be an opportunity to waive sureties on the bond and to, and to waive a guardian ad litem. Jennifer can speak a bit more to that from the court's perspective. Um, so certainly I, I always set expectations with clients that um, requiring sureties and requiring um, a guardian litem is, is a real possibility, um, but you know, typically we try to waive those as well. Um, I also tend to prepare a, mem a memorandum in support of what we're seeking, especially if it's an estate planning um, uh, transfer, if we're doing some long-term care planning, some tax planning, um, whatever, uh, uh, um, any explanation you can provide to the court to set out you know, the reasons why this is appropriate, the reasons why this protected person would have done this themselves if they had the capacity um, can, can be helpful as well. And then the pr proposed decree, I showed you a couple examples, which is that um, MPC 734. Um, there will be a hearing for this. These, these types of petitions are not allowed administratively. Um, so if you're preparing for a hearing, you want to make sure that you are getting an up updated medical certificate. Um, it has to be dated within 30 days from the date of the hearing. Um, if, it's a, if the person has an intellectual disability and you're doing a clinical team report, you actually don't need to update that prior to the hearing, as long as it was timely when the petition was filed within um, 180 days from filing a petition, that clinical team report is, is, is fine. You don't have to do anything further there. 
Um, of course, you have to uh, serve a, the citation on, on the petition um, on the protected person um, in hand. Have a disinterested person serve that on the protected person in hand. Um, you'll also have to serve the citation on any interested party who has not assented and waived notice. Um, and if once the hearing is scheduled, you'll need to also uh, serve notice of the hearing in hand on the protected person and on any in interested parties who have not assented and waived notice. Um, so this one, uh, some this tends to vary from court to court and sometimes from judge to judge. Um, so I always prepare the carry background information um, for a proposed fiduciary for both guardianships and conservatorships. Um, I have found that the policies kind of uh, vary depending on what court you're in and when they're gonna require a carry background check, but I usually just have that um, on hand in case. And then in terms of who needs to attend, uh, certainly not the protected person if, if um, on the medical certificate, if, if the treating provider um, indicates that it would be harmful or, or confusing or difficult for them to attend, um, then often their, their attendance could be waived. Um, we usually recommend that the proposed fiduciary be present for the hearing. Um, and then of course, if anyone else, any other interested parties are, are welcome to attend. Um, and uh, some drawbacks from, from using a single transaction conservatorship. Um, I mean, there's always the potential that you think it's really just going to be one transaction, but really it kind of bleeds into other areas and really this person does need to um, have some ongoing financial management. So if that's the case, you would have to start a new petition um, and, and kind of start the process over to have someone appointed for a full conservatorship. Um, even though this is for a more you know, limited situation, it's not a fast track to appointment, you still have to go through the full standard conservatorship appointment process. It takes just as much time. Um, and this is just something that I've experienced is that financial institutions are sometimes unfamiliar with, with a special conservator. Um, so I've had the scenario where there is a power of attorney in place. We did a special conservator um, to assist with some actions that were not authorized under the power of attorney and the financial institution was now viewing the special conservator as a full conservator and wanting them to add them to all of the person's accounts when that really wasn't appropriate. So th there have been some situations where you have to um, kind of educate uh, third parties on, on what this type of appointment actually means. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but just something to, to be aware of. Um, so with that, I'm gonna add it over. Oh, actually, sorry, I'm gonna hand it. Actually, Laura. Yeah. Your slides are amazing. And do you mind, I guess I wasn't prepared to do this, but do you mind if I can go off of your slides a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Of course. Can you, can you go back to John Doe number one? Yeah. Okay. So what I'd want to say here, because everything that Laura said is absolutely right, and how the court responds as I understand it, really is going to be very fact specific. When I wanted to, when you, when we're talking about guardians ad litem, as I understand the law, anytime you are doing an estate plan for a disabled person, the statute requires the appointment of counsel. It even says it on the petition itself, 
where it says if you're doing a, I think it's a D4 or D7 arrangement, which is a some types of transfer estate planning arrangements, counsel must be appointed for the protected person. In the hit in the court, we always always appointed guardians ad litem. People know that we appoint Rogers counsel. And those folks are appointed with the idea that they are um, objecting, you know, they stand in more of a hostile position. They're trying to, uh, you know, ensure they're, they're, they're meant to somewhat not object, but critically concern themselves with um, the Rogers antipsychotic meds. In addition, Rogers attorneys counsel for a respondent does not file a report. They do what their client wants and whether their client has a disability and if their client says, I don't want this, I don't want this because oftentimes they're moving into a nursing home. It's a very different standard. So we historically have appointed guardians ad litem. The guardian ad litem is always an attorney, but the guardian ad litem reports to the court and says, yes, this is in the best interest of the respondent and the respondent is not objecting. Once I get a GAL report that says this is in the best interest of the respondent, but she is objecting, then the court is frankly appointing counsel also for the respondent. So I, I hope that somewhat makes sense. The court appoints guardians ad litem almost all the time on these special um, uh, protective arrangements because the law requires it. And I believe the Americans with Disability Act, which is federal standards, would require it. The question for me, and as I talk to my judges who are really not familiar with this area, it is new under the code and the judges don't see a lot of these cases. I do most of mine administratively. Um, so, so they actually are very rarely re reviewed by a judge if in one of my cases. But um, the question that I have to ask the attorneys is what independent person, competent, represents this disabled person? And if the answer is no one, then a GAL is needed because otherwise we do a conservatorship and the conservatorship will then appoint a GAL to follow the actions of people who are managing somebody else's assets outside of the court system. So I am a, what independent person represents this person who cannot represent themselves? The answer is no one, then the court appoints somebody. That's my basic, my basic philosophy. Um, when it comes to John Doe, example one, so because then I also have to think about, about whether there's going to be an ongoing concern. So here with John Doe, example one, the funds are going into, John Doe is already on Mass Health, and his funds are going into a pooled trust account. The court understands what a pooled trust account is. And so because they are regulated, they exist as far as we know and understand, our understanding is limited too. Um, but as far as I understand, 
you know, there's certain entities that manage these things. They have protocols, they have regs. The money can go into the pooled fund. No problem. I am going to appoint a guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem is going to take a look, ensure everything is good, and maybe make some recommendations as to what else might be beneficial, if not just the pooled fund, and sign off on it. There's not going to be any additional work that needs to be done into a pooled fund. But what I often get is folks that want to put their monies into a trust. And those trusts are quite complicated. That is when I really start to say, first off, I have some very basic things that I need in the trust. It has to be under a prudent person standard. We are not signing off on trusts that are outside the public policy of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Able-bodied people create trusts that say, yep, I want this trust to go to, um, you know, I want this trust and I want my trustee to have a gross negligence standard. That's because it's a rev trust and, and I'm the trustee and it only goes forward after I die, right? Are these trusts do not have gross negligence standards. They have prudent person standards. They do not have situs changes. They are not decantable trusts. They, um, they have accounting requirements with a trust protector because I, again, can't have a trust for the benefit of a disabled person. And then that disabled person doesn't have a protector reviewing the trust accounts because otherwise I'm leaving a person too vulnerable. And the court's job on protective arrangements is not to leave a person vulnerable. So those are the considerations that a judge has to, has to think about. Um, Laura, can you go to the example that continued the next page? Um, when we talk about the report that's being filed, the court wants to see all of the, the evidence that the job has been done. Remember first, these are not limited transactions. The decree is very important. The decree, and we'll look at it in a minute, is, um, is a very different decree. It is a special for an array of protective arrangements. And it's and, and people talk about it being a single transaction. It's not, it doesn't have to be a single transaction. It can be an array of transactions that are protective arrangements. It's very flexible. I have a case now where we're doing partial decrees. There are going to be three decrees allowing certain protective arrangements because minors are coming into assets from a grandparent's estate that's going through this child, a parent's estate into the children's um, very sophisticated trust that will benefit them for their lifetime. Please remember that when minors get trusts, they have general powers of appointment over the trust property. They do not just have testamentary powers. They, I had have cases sometimes where the children will never get their money, never get their money. They're inheriting money and they're never going to be able to get it. That 
is a no. They have to have a general power of appointment over their property, which is present, not just temporary, uh, not just testamentary. That is the statute. Um, the kids have come into their money. It's not being held up um, until they die. So it's things like that that the court is trying to look at because we're responding to what the estate planners are attempting uh, to do. So the report is, go, it is signed off by the GAL. So think of a protective arrangement as a, as a supervised administration. You ask for something that's generally somewhat unique and complicated. The GAL signs off on it. The work is, the court signs off on it. The work is done and the discharge the discharge request has the report that's been requested and the GAL has assented to that report. The disabled person has gotten a copy of that report and then the court issues its discharge. So, so Laura, your next slide is the decree. So you'll see, as Laura said, her decree will say, you know, what is the job? And then at the bottom of the decree, it says, what is, what is it that will prove to the court that you have done your work as this fiduciary? To me, you need to make it very clear because again, your goal is for the court to do the discharge administratively. And, and a person like myself can only do a discharge administratively if in fact the the things that are submitted are exactly what the judge said had to be submitted in order for me to do the discharge. And that's the proof that the work has been done. Um, all right, I think I'm gonna go to my slides if that's okay. Can I do that? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you should be able to. All right, then I'm gonna go to my sample decrees while I'm at it. So this is a decree discharging the special. What I often find is the, the wrong forms are being used when we're doing a special. Laura's absolutely right. It's the same petition. But if you are doing a limited transaction or a special, a protective arrangement, you're doing the, the uh, decree of appointment that she already showed you. And I'll go through that form again. And then you don't do a complete settlement, you do this decree of discharge. And here is an actual one that we did. And right, and so, so we say, you know, the person was appointed on such and such a day and the special conservator has filed a report satisfactory to the court detailing the accomplishments of the protective arrangements. Now, this is important, right? Because our forms really do reflect the law and what we understand. This report has been provided to the protected person. Don't forget that. All other interested persons, right? I need them too. And has been reviewed by a guardian ad litem on behalf of the protective person. Um, uh, I don't know what I crossed out there. 
So here, because I, I needed, I didn't have a certificate of service and I needed to push this along, I wrote the court accepting attorney Shore's cover letter dated that reflected all those things. Believe me when I tell you, I get the assent of the GAL, not doing any discharges without the assent of the GAL. GAL represents the protected person. So then the decree and order terminates the special and discharges them from the office and the trust. Here, let me see if I have another one. Sample decrees, let's see, that's one of them. Okay, here's one too. This one did go on the record. This is a decree of appointment, all right? So this was our appointment and True enough, we're always saying the same thing. So sometimes I'll put as set forth below because understand councils give this to me and then I have to fix them. Um, the special conservator only has the ability to write to access funds and respondents personal needs account, evaluate the needs, do a spend down with mass health, right? They wanted to purchase a bunch of things. So then we asked, the report was going to just simply give me an account. You're not going to pay for that account. It's a report, just an accounting of how and to whom the funds were distributed and for what purpose. Copies of receipts and canceled checks should be included if available. Then, so that was the decree. That was the decree of appointment. Then there's going to be the decree of discharge. Again, GAL is signing off on this. Everybody's been given notice. And it's and it to me it's an administrative um, discharge. Here is another, and I'm sorry these are in such bad um, shape. But again, here's another decree and order appointing a person. And here the language what they were looking to do was to obtain certain life insurance proceeds, and then to fund um, uh, from the father execute and fund a, I think they wanted to put it into a certain trust. And there was a GAL here. The trust was in perfectly good shape, except for it didn't have a power of appointment in the child. And so we added as per the statute that the child would retain a power of appointment over the trust that upon age 18, the trustees were going to furnish an annual account to the child. Sorry, that's the child's name. Um, prior to that, the GAL, and this is very typical for us, prior to the turning of 18, that GAL is often the person that becomes the trust protector and gets the accounts. Now, sometimes the GAL will not be the trust protector getting the accounts because the child, the trustee might be an uncle. See here where I have, it looks like this child is coming into money from their father's estate. Their father's estate may be done or the trustee, the trustee may be an uncle. And then I have a mother who can get the accounts on behalf of the child because what disinterested, competent person represents the child it can be a mother if the trustee is an uncle because the mother wants to ensure that the child is getting the funds due uh, the child. And so we could do that here. Um, we wanted affirmation that the life insurance proceeds have been received. The trust was executed. I would need a copy of that trust. 
and funded with the proceeds. Oh, and then the judge wrote, right, I copy of the trust shall be filed with the court. So um, those are the things that we're, you know, we're really trying to think about. I'm gonna go into my um, PowerPoint and see how I do from there. Let's see, do I start? Oh, I can't see what I'm looking at, okay. All right, I think I've already now horrified you all about my GAL issue, because again, it is a substituted judgment and attorney GAL. And I just wanna move this one thing here. So I have done some examples also, um, more than what we've gone over and When people seek a GAL, at least in the Norfolk court, I often will say, folks, give me a GAL that has expertise. They're not in your office because, you know, am I doing a very, very high end complicated estate plan um, for very wealthy people? Am I doing something that's doing, you know, mass health eligibility? Am I doing something for, for a child? Just, I, I need an attorney who knows what they're doing and can do this quickly. I'm really not looking to jam up. Our goal for the court is to do the best on behalf of this respondent, given their, their current circumstance. We do generally ask, you know, about adult children, right? Because the petition is going to notice all purported heirs at law. And if it's an intact family, the purported heir at law is usually only the surviving, a surviving spouse, but we do require notice on the children. Oh, why can't I go to my next? I do generally get a sense of all other interested parties. So what generally happens on the discharge decree is the, there's a certification that the, in, the protected person was given notice of the report. The GAL has assented and there's a certificate that says all the other kids, all the other persons have gotten notice basically because there's not a real standard ability of, of uh, having a drop dead date where the anybody can object. I give it about a two week period of time. And so long as my GAL has assented, then I'll issue the discharge decree. Waiving sureties, let me go back to this one. Um, I, I'm not as interested in the issue of sureties as I am in the GAL issue because the, the, the transaction is really just a pass-through, right? If there's a special conservator being appointed, they're just moving money from one place to another. They're not managing funds. Um, even if they're moving money from one place into a trust, the conservator themselves are not 
um, really managing money. They are assisting in a protective arrangement to move assets around. So I don't mind the waiving of the surety. The, the, the surety is a real non-issue for me. Um, when I have kids that are inheriting money and I do see that, uh, I, I get that a lot. Remember that my kids, um, if they're over the age of, I think, 14, they actually have to nominate and I will need their, um, I will need their assent. We don't actually have a form to assent for Mary Minor. So you would take the guardianship nomination form. Uh, we see children or often will nominate a guardian when they're 15 years old. And so that form you'll need to just mark up and the child will nominate whoever is going to be the conservator or special conservator. And oftentimes the petitioner is a parent. So they'll say, you know, my child is inheriting funds and I would like them secured for their future. I am a big believer in 529 plans and I'm a big believer in UTMA accounts. My experience is that people don't move money out of 529. They don't break 529 vehicles. So in this fact pattern, I have a child that's coming into 100 grand. She's 15 years old. If she's going to be going to college, right, um, it is $60,000, $70,000.80 if you're at BC for a year of college. Hope you'll get some do better than I do with my child going to college. So um, here the, the ask is a 75% going into a custodial 529. Please note that a custodial five, I'm not putting money into a regular 529 plan. Regular 529 plan will allow the owner to change the beneficiary. A custodial 529 plan requires the beneficiary to always be Mary Minor. And there'll be a 20, 25% into an UTMA account. That makes sense, right? Because UTMAs have their own obligations and the kid's gonna need some money to go for prom and for a school trip and all the fun things that you do when you are uh, graduating high school. So, this actually, you know, it's a lot of money. I used to think that the 100K I could, I could do. And then I started down to 50K and, and also saw some issues with, with unsophisticated parents coming into money. And so the GAL issue on this may, there may be a possibility of there may be a possibility of waiving a GAL under these minors fact patterns. But so that is gonna be the ask and you'll have to think about that. At 100K, it's unlikely. At 50K, much more likely. Um, no med cert for a minor. Um, we'd probably be looking for the death certificate uh, the father, I'm not so concerned about minor siblings. And we already have now talked about these different decrees. It's not the regular decree. It's not a limited conservator. 
It is the MPC 734 decree that is a protective arrangement. I again would want to see the, I want to see the fidelity custodial 529 that 75 grand went into. I want to see the UTMA account that the 25 grand went into, and then we would do the discharge. Again, not so, so concerned about, I'm really not so concerned about the bond. The report is 90 days. I can move that to however many days you want. And it's the redacted bank financial institution statements that reflect those, um, uh, you know, those docs. Um, all right, so we have talked a lot about the GALs. Uh, right. Mm. Yeah, I think I've already, I've already hit you all with that. Trust protectors, we've already talked about these issues, right? Oh, all right. So that is it for, for me. And we are going to share these, um, these slides with everyone after the fact and, and the handouts. Um, so we, we will get those out to all the participants. Um, so there, there are just a few questions that I think we can run through here. Um, so the first one is, is there a form for the report of the special conservator? And, and there, there is not that I'm aware of. No. Um, I, I think it can be pretty informal. I've seen it done as a detailed cover letter. Um, I usually put it in just a memo format. Um, but I just think the important part is just clearly explaining what actions were taken and then attaching the supporting documents to prove that the actions were, were, were taken. And that GAL report does get impounded. I still want this things redacted because there's no reason to not redact, um, but they are impounded. Mm -hmm. um, the next question I might defer to Jennifer to get her take because it's, it's a real estate question and she's, she's quite the expert in real estate matters with probate. But um, so it, it's regarding, instead of, I gave an example of transferring real estate you know, between spouses um, but if there's a sale of, of real property, I've never done this with a single transaction, um, but if, if you were to, to sell real estate as a single transaction, the question is, do you also need a petition for sale of real estate? Yes, you do, because the statute itself actually says that. Uh, it, it, and I've seen one that didn't get done that way, unfortunately, and they came back to me and I don't know what to say, but the statute is very clear. It's like sub D under, under rights of conservators. And it says any conservator appointed is required to do a license to sell. But, um, but I think that's a difference if you're selling rather than transferring because transferring between spouses is not a sale. And so that would be done under a single transaction. Transferring the real estate into a trust is not a sale and would be done under a single transaction. So you certainly want to buddy up to your title attorney. But those, those type of nominal transfers for estate planning um, is very different than a license. So that can be done under a single transaction and generally is. Um, you know, Laura, it, it, the issue also too, like if I have elderly people and a long-term marriage and 
only thing that's happening is for whatever reason to transfer the real estate into, you know, co-tenancy that the court may waive a GAL for, right? You know, you just have to recognize that as I understand the law requires it. And, and the real question isn't waiving the GAL. It's really what GAL you want so that this is an independent person who will be done at the least expensive, most efficient way to ensure that, that the rights of a disabled person are protected. Yeah, and I think, um, especially increasingly in the last couple of years, we tend to expect the GAL is going to be appointed in these cases. That isn't to say that we haven't had them waive before. <laughs> and I think, you know, there are some scenarios where it may be appropriate and other courts may be more willing to waive than Norfolk. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, I think you should go in with the presumption that there is going to be a GAL unless it's a very unique, you know, a very particular situation you know um, right very cut and dry or the answer is i can waive a gal because i have a durable power and it's to say it's not the durable power who's doing something if you can find an independent person right who for some reason represents this child and can stand for them or this adult i can do it you know i just need a non-conflicted person which it can be tricky um, so another question here, uh, I think you answered this um, already, but it just but to confirm that if you're doing a single transaction, um, then you don't need to do a petition for complete settlement. And that, that is correct. You don't need that petition for complete settlement. Um, you do the, the report and then ultimately get that de decree of discharge and that is sufficient. Um, That's I right. find that I, I have to add on to the decree for discharge, I have to add on to discharge the bond specifically, because I've had the scenario where I've had the decree of discharge, and then the bond company says, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't discharge the bond specifically, which seems a little silly, but um, I, I have had to, I have added on, uh, particularly to make sure that the bond is discharged. That's funny, that decree dis that's interesting, that decree discharges the fiduciary, but actually doesn't release the bond. Is what you're saying? Yeah, that's fine. You can add, you can certainly add that on um, because that is definitely the goal, mm -hmm. right? I like um, to have people think of this as a protect a, a supervised proceeding where you've got an ask which is on the general petition. You have a decree though that says, listen, I'm supervising this. I'm telling you to go out and do this job. Then you come back to me and you tell me that the job is done, right? So it's like an interlocutory decree in some ways, right? The middle decree where you get authorized to do the job. Then you come back to me, you say, I've done the job. Everybody says true enough. And then you get your discharge. It is a supervised administration. So here's a question. So it says, may a single transaction conservatorship be for multiple minor heirs of an intestate estate? I, I think no, but. Um, no, because each child is an individual. So we would require we, we would we would we can't do a concert. We we each child's an individual. And so we're doing a conservatorship still over that one human being. Mm -hmm. but, they, but they are going to be sister cases. Mm 
Um, and then here's another GAL question, which you may have touched on. But the question is, um, may the GAL be waived if there's a, a parent who can serve with virtual representation? So I guess if the parent was not being appointed as the conservator, is that a scenario where you would consider waiving the GAL? Yes, and we do see it because we do see it because um, a lot of times parents are divorced and a parent has passed away, or um, you know. I, that's the conflict analysis. That's the conflict analysis. And understand, you know, when I do, we do these trust protectors. And what happens with the trust protector, if I can't waive a GAL, is the trust protector, the language of the trust will say that annually, the trust protector is going to get an account. It could be a statement. It could be whatever the trust protector is comfortable with, because I don't know you know, it depends on every circumstance, right? And so they're going to get some kind of an accounting and the trust protector, is, you know, gets it and either doesn't object to it or does object to it if there's an issue, but they are somebody standing in the shoes of what that 18 year old will be able to do thereafter. Um, and it's as, and it's as simple as that. It just can't, I, we've had a lot of cases and, you know, love parents, love aunties, but, you know, you can't be getting a summer house and putting on, you know, a pool and a third floor to your house and now the money is gone. And we've had kids where the money was, you know, supposed to go for college and the money's gone, gone by loved ones. So I think we got through all the questions and we're right, we're right at almost one o'clock. So um, thank you, Jennifer. That was really helpful. And um, again, we are going to circulate all of the, the materials. Um, so you can, you can look for that email. And um, thank you for joining us today. This is great. Thank you. I just want to say thank you to you both for speaking today. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Laura, can I give you a phone call after? Yeah. Yeah. All right, let me, okay. let me call you. All right, good.